No place I'd rather preach than in my home church. It's good to be with you. I want to invite you to stand with me as I read Psalm 8. Another one of these psalms that picks up on the theme of the majesty of our God and King. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You may be seated. Our text for this morning, like the passage read earlier, Psalm 93, opens with a declaration of God's majesty. My purpose this morning is not, as it would usually be, my purpose is not to exegete either of these passages, but rather to investigate with you the meaning of the word majesty and consider what this word has to tell us about our God. Most of us are aware that the psalmist frequently refers to the God of Scripture as majestic or as majesty. But he's far from the only writer of Scripture to practice this. Moses, Job, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, and Zephaniah in the Old Testament, Zechariah in the Old Testament, and uh, Peter and Paul in the New all alike refer to his majesty, and the writer of Hebrews actually calls him the majesty on high. For some years now, I've been curious about the exact meaning of this word. Like many of you, I've had a general sense, a kind of a, a gut feeling about its meaning based on the way in which it's used in scriptures. But if you'd ask me exactly what the writers of Scripture intended to communicate about the character of our God when they used this word, I would have had a hard time answering your question. After all, it is not exactly a word that's commonly used in our daily conversation, nor do we often see it in print unless, unless we're reading in the Scriptures. Apart from the phrase, Purple Mountain's Majesty, which we're used to singing in America, that patriotic hymn, or a reference to the E in the evening news to Her Majesty, the Queen, or now it'll be to His Majesty, the King, one can go for months without hearing or seeing the words majesty or majestic. In this sense, the word majesty is like several others which have fallen out of common use. Words like um, glorious, uh, dominion, providential, or the word splendor, which, by the way, often appears in Scripture in conjunction with the word majesty, majestic splendor, or the splendor of his majesty. These words and several others like them are rarely heard in our common discourse, or if they are, they are terribly misused. 
I remember several years ago, I was in a restaurant, picked up the menu, and they were advertising awesome onion blossoms. I remember again a few years ago uh, being in another uh, restaurant and handed a menu that, that talked about and uh, invited us to order glorious hamburgers. And without thinking, I announced in a voice much too loud for a restaurant, oh no, you don't eat things that are glorious, you bow down and worship them. <laughs> hamburgers aren't glorious. God is glorious. Why am I telling you this? Because majesty is one of those words that is seldom used in our culture. And when it is used, it is nearly always used in a manner which greatly reduces the height and depth of its true meaning. An etymological study of the word, a study in its origins, will take us back to the Latin, maestas, which means simply great or greatness. The Hebrew, on the other hand, gives us several words which are brought over into the English translations by this word majesty or majestic. But the Hebrew word most often translated into the English by our word majestic is the word adir, a common word used in everyday conversation to refer to persons or things that possessed a quality of greatness. And so too, the New Testament word translated majesty or majestic in our English Bible is a common word, megas, simply meaning greatness or dignity. And this being the case, we find the very same word we translate as majesty being used in Scripture and elsewhere to describe such ordinary things as thunder, or trees, mountains, rivers, virtually any aspect of God's creation, but also the dignity and the honor of men of position. For instance, Scripture speaks of King David's majesty. Foreign kings are referred to as majesties. For instance, Esther refers to Xerxes as your majesty. Scriptures speak of Pharaoh's majesty and the Roman emperor's majesty. Once in Acts 19.27, there is even a reference to the reputation of a false god, Artemis, in terms of her majesty. On another occasion, in Job 40, verse 10, it's used by God to refer to the greatness of a man, Job. When God says to him, we'll look at this a little bit later, adorn yourself in your majesty and show me what you got, Job. While the Greek and the Hebrew words for majesty are used widely to refer to some aspect of greatness found in nature or in the achievements of otherwise normal mortals, they are most often used, most often used to describe the unique majesty or greatness of our God. Far from being just one more word intended to suggest a certain level of excellence or, or native ability, the word majesty when used in reference to God, says J.I. Packer, is always an invitation to worship. So then I want you to consider with me this morning the unique majesty, the unique greatness of our God. Let me say at the outset of this consideration that the subject before us is truly inexhaustible. If we had all time and eternity and the mind of geniuses, we couldn't begin to fathom, let alone communicate, 
the majesty, the greatness of our God. But we still do well to consider this matter. Nonetheless, since Scripture calls upon us to do so repeatedly, and because the people of God down through the ages have made it their habit and their practice to consider again and again the majesty, the greatness of our God. So then, while what I have to offer on this theme this morning must of necessity fall far short of, uh, of the complete truth concerning God's majesty, it's my prayer that God will be honored by our efforts to grasp something of his majestic person. Consider first that unlike the greatness of men, God's greatness is incomparable. When we speak of the greatness of men, we are always speaking in comparative terms, aren't we? We argue with one another over who was the greatest golfer, who was the greatest football player, inventor, humanitarian. We keep records to prove who was the greatest. We honor the greatest among us. We, uh, we have things called Ripley's Believe It or Not, which tell us who once stuffed the most ping pong balls in his or her mouth. The greatest at that. We have things like the Guinness World of, or Book of World Records, which again records all kinds of things. The world's largest pizza and, and the person that ate it, or the people that ate it, I hope. We have halls of fame for nearly everything. I grew up in Canton, Ohio, which has a hall of fame for what? Football, that's right. But even while we're keeping our records, we know that tomorrow or next week or a decade from now, someone, someone, somewhere will break the record. Someone will be taller or prettier or have a higher IQ or whatever. Again, even the collective power and majesty of the nations is nothing compared to him. In Isaiah 40, we read, with whom then will you compare me? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Don't you have any understanding? To whom will you compare me? The point that is on, unlike the greatness of men and nations, unlike the greatness of creation itself, his greatness is incomparable. Second, consider that unlike the greatness of men, his greatness, his majesty, spans every aspect of his person. Everything that has to do with him is majestic. Interestingly, even the 30 pieces of silver paid for our Lord's betrayal is referred to in Scripture as that majestic price. Why? Because it has to do with him. Every aspect of his being, everything about him is great, majestic. Now, few of us, very few of us, are truly great at anything, right? In fact, we're only good at a very few things. Even the most gifted and accomplished among us, those who are triple threat athletes or cross-disciplinary geniuses, are mere savants when compared with him. We excel at one or two things at best, but in a thousand other areas, we fumble and stumble through life like little children. 
The brightest and the best of us are forced from time to time to own our deficiencies and weaknesses. And the rest of us spend our entire lifetime demonstrating just how limited and frail and imperfect we are. Truth be told, the list of our limitations and imperfections is much longer than the list of things at which we are good and the list of things at which we are great is for most of us non-existent. Some years ago, I was pastoring at a church as part of a team, and I remember that one of my responsibilities was to oversee the, the youth and the college age group in the church, and um, they had taken to calling me Marty Mouth. A friend was visiting the church. He said, why in the world do they call you Marty Mouth? I said, well... It's because the teens in this church have seen me fumble my way through so many other activities, they have concluded that the only part of my anatomy which works is my mouth. <laughs> A few years later, I was pastoring at another church, and when it came time to leave that church, they presented me with a gift. They presented me with a toolbox. Well, not really a toolbox. They presented me with tools. They said, we wanted to give this to you because we knew it was the one thing you didn't have. <laughs> and because we knew you didn't have it and wouldn't know what to do with it, we had it made into a plaque. And they'd had all these things soldered together so I could take it home and hang it on a wall. None of us is good at everything. And only God is great, majestic at everything. Or again, consider that the greatness, the majesty of our God is without beginning or end. When men does do some great deed or accomplish some great feat, we label it as to time and place because we may never again accomplish this same level of greatness. We erect a plaque which reads, on this day and at this place, so-and-so hit a ball 500 feet, climbed this world's tallest mountain, delivered a significant speech, signed a treaty. Oh, you say, but there are people like Tom Brady that just keep doing it. Yeah, but old man time is chasing him, you know. On rare occasions, the repetition of some great accomplishment may continue for a short period of time. But God's greatness, his majesty, is never limited by time or place. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so too is his majesty. He who sets the worlds in space has kept them spinning, all 200 billion galaxies, year after year, age after age. No matter how extraordinary our heroes may be, no matter how amazing their accomplishments, they soon grow old, they die, and even their deeds are forgotten. We had a recent reminder of this, didn't we? With Queen Elizabeth who after 70 years of faithful reign, died. It caused me to think back to another great ruler of another period, Louis XIV, who actually ruled 72 years. Some of you know the story of how he had, he had decided how his funeral would be handled and he had determined it would be a, a massive crowd at a great cathedral and, and the preacher would stand and all the lights in the, in the facility would be put out except for one large candle that would be above his coffin. 
And so they set it up like that. And the pastor came out and there was this one light. And before he said anything, he reached down and extinguished it and said to the people, only God is great. All other candles are extinguished, no matter how majestic they may appear to be. But his flame cannot be put out for the simple reason that he himself is the light of the world. Our God's majesty remains the same age to age. He is not captive to either time or space. Yet again, only God's majesty is not the result of much effort. Unlike the majesty, the greatness experienced by men, our God's majesty is not the accumulation of, of much effort and much trying. When asked by Moses how to explain himself to the children of Israel, God very simply said, tell them I am that I am. The greatness achieved by men is the result of a lifetime of hard work, study, hours of practice, political maneuvering, or in some cases, physical battle. We become great in something as the result of great effort over many years. Not so with God. His greatness is not the result of much trying, but is rather built, built into the very fiber of his eternal and sovereign being. His majesty is but an expression of his being. Finally, only his majesty will one day be acknowledged by every man, woman, and child, every king, every queen, every potentate who ever lived. It's only been a few weeks since we witnessed via TV for most of us the millions who lined the streets in London to pay tribute to the late Queen Elizabeth. Throngs of men and women waiting in line for hours, some of them for days, to pay tribute to her. And yet as loved as Queen Elizabeth was, her majesty hardly covered the earth, not even for the 70 years of her reign. And even she was quick to admit this. Among the tributes written in the aftermath of Queen Elizabeth's death was this one written by a member of the press and an acquaintance of the queen, Carl Lafferton. He writes, As a constitutional monarch, the nature of Queen Elizabeth II's role dictated that she not offer opinions. No one knew which political party she supported or which was her favorite of the 15 prime ministers who served under her reign, or whether she was pro-Brexit or pro-Remain. So it's significant that in her 70-year reign, she only once wrote a foreword to a book. The book was published by the Bible Society for her 90th birthday celebration in the year 2016, and it was titled the queen and the king she serves. Lafferton writes, her majesty always knew she had a sovereign and that he loved her, died for her, had forgiven her, and now called her to a life of loving service in response. He goes on to say, she may have been a queen, but she saw herself first and foremost as the subject of the king. She once said, Billions of people follow Christ's teachings and find in him the guiding light for their lives 
And I am one of them. In Revelation 5.13, the apostle John speaks of a day when every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that dwell within them will proclaim to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And no political leader or dictator or queen or king, no one who while on this earth was considered to be great will be absent on that day and everyone will proclaim his majesty and all alike will bow before him. We come now to consideration of how his majesty may be observed in our day. Great portions of scripture appeal to us to stop and observe the greatness, the majesty of our God from the historical books of the Old Testament to the writings of the Psalms to the anthems of praise and exaltation recorded in the book of Revelation. The invitation, the command to stop and behold the majesty of our God and King appears over and over again in Scripture. But perhaps no one passage speaks to this theme more comprehensively than that found in the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Confronted by difficult days, becoming increasingly despondent, the people of God desperately needed a new vision of their God and his unparalleled greatness. And may I suggest to you that the church of the living God needs just such a new vision of our God today. We live in frightening days, don't we? We live in time of worldwide inflation and what's the new word coming out now? Triple-demic. It's a season of threats of dirty bombs and nuclear weapons. We're watching China's rise to power. We have no idea what North Korea might do with their nuclear power. Iran is rapidly flexing her muscles. We read about global warming and we're told that it's now moving at a speed that we never anticipated. And here at home, there's anarchy in the streets of our cities. Did you ever think you wouldn't want to go into Chicago simply because of what's going on there now? A period of political polarization threatening to tear apart our democracy. Corruption at the highest levels of government and the lowest levels. A season when homosexuality, abortion, the legalization of drugs and pornography are considered by most people to be values. Things to be highly valued. And like the people of Isaiah's day, the people of God today need a clear reminder that our God is still a great, a majestic God and he's still in charge of all that we see about us. How can his majesty be observed in our day? Where should we look to see him in all his majesty? Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 40. In verses 12 and following, he says, Behold him in his mighty deeds, beginning with creation and continuing down through the ages. In verse 15 and following, he says, behold him in his dealings among the nations 
And he says, all nations before him are as nothing, and they count as less than nothing. You tremble before the nations, he says, but God is so much greater than the nations. They are nothing to him. Behold your God. In verses 22 and following, he says, behold him in relationship to Mother Earth. And he writes, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people, hundreds of millions, are like grasshoppers to him. Verse 23, he says, behold him in relationship to the world's great leaders. Do you really, really think that these men direct the affairs of history? Isaiah writes, he brings princes to nothing and reduces them to naught. Verse 26 and following, he says, behold him in the heavens. Man, we're... We're so proud of our abilities to behold the heavens. Have you seen our latest telescopes? Have you seen what our space probes are doing? We're now able, we have most recently observed out there somewhere in space in time long past, we have observed the birth of a galaxy. Boy, are we something special? We now know that there are at least 200 billion galaxies in the skies. We behold these things and congratulate ourselves for doing so. But for all this, we fail to behold him, the majestic king who created and sustains it all. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens, says Isaiah, and ask yourself, who created all these things? In just a few days, we'll go to the the polls to vote for people who promise to move earth and sky and make everything as it ought to be if we'll just elect them. And as I listen to their campaign commercials and as I reflect on all the many promises our national and world-class leaders make, I'm reminded of God's exchange with a man named Job. Having meticulously, carefully recited the wonders of his might and his majesty, he turns to Job and says, in effect, now it's your turn, Job. Put on your big boy pants. You say, I never read that in my translation. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, but when the scriptures talk about God's, God's majesty, it often uses a phrase, God robed himself in the splendor of his majesty. And that's what God's been doing in these chapters in Job leading up to this moment. And now he turns to Job and he says to him, in effect, Job, now you put on your big boy pants. You adorn yourself with your majesty, your greatness. That's the word he uses. You adorn yourself with your majesty, Job, your greatness. And you show me what you've got. I can almost hear God issuing the same challenge to our local, our state, our national, and our international leaders today. Men and women with prestigious titles and degrees, big bank accounts, and even bigger egos. But no clue as to how to resolve the problems we're facing in our age. Isaiah 40, 25, God says, to whom will you compare me? What leader, what nation, what power, what wisdom, what justice, what political agenda will you compare me with? Where should we look to see God's majesty in our age? I'm reminded of a story I heard some years ago, a story about a, a grandfather and his little boy who were out fishing in a little brook. 
It was a gorgeous day, a beautiful day. They were enjoying it, and Granddad was singing some of the old hymns from his days as a child, and the little boy looked at him at one point, and he said, Granddaddy, have you ever seen God? Probably figured his granddaddy was old enough to have seen him. And the grandfather said to him, son, it's getting so that's all I can see. As I reflected on the grandfather's words, I was reminded that seeing God's majesty in the world around us is less a matter of looking in the right places than it is of looking through eyes of faith. Once again, it was Isaiah, this time in chapter 26 and verse 10, says, when grace is shown to the wicked, the unbelievers, they don't learn. They don't see it. And they don't regard the majesty, there it is, the majesty of the Lord. Oh, they see all right, that is with their physical eyes, but they don't behold and they don't understand and they don't comprehend what their eyes see. Why? Because they look through unbelieving eyes, through eyes that cannot or will not see the majesty of God at work in all of life. Lord, give us, give us your people, your church, eyes to see, eyes to behold your majesty in all of life. Let us be like the grandfather who said, it's getting to be I can't see anything but him and his majesty. All that we've considered thus far brings us to one final observation, which is this. What would be an appropriate response to God's majesty? How should we respond when confronted with the majesty of our God? And as I examined the numerous passages that speak of God's majesty, there were at least four responses demonstrated repeatedly by his people through the ages. The first was to be still and listen. Classic examples of this are Job in the Hebrew Scriptures and Peter in the Greek. Both men were men of great faith and both were privileged to behold God in the splendor of his majesty. And what lesson did each of them learn in that life-changing moment? Job said, when it hit me, I put my mouth, I put my hand over my mouth. I didn't say another word. For his part, Peter had to be prompted by a voice from heaven which said to him, Shh, this is my son, listen to him. In the presence of his majesty, we do well to be still and listen. In Psalm 104 and in numerous other portions of scripture, we may observe a second and a third appropriate response to God's majesty. In verse 33, we read, sing praise to him. And in verse 34, meditate upon his greatness. First we're silenced in his presence and then, then there comes that moment when we simply must give expression to it and so we, we sing his praises even as we did this morning in our time together of singing. And we meditate upon his greatness just as we're doing right now. And finally, we are taught by Holy Scripture to tell of his greatness to proclaim it to all who will hear. In Psalm 145, we read his greatness, his majesty, no one can fathom. 
One generation commends his works to another. They tell of all your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And then in verse 21 of that psalm, the psalmist says, And my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Numerous Bible scholars have reminded us that we tell of his majesty not because we can in any sense increase his greatness by doing so, but because we desire to add to his reputation among the nations. Because we cannot bear the thought that he should be so belittled, so blasphemed, so ignored by men of unbelief. These then are the appropriate responses of God's people to the majesty of our great God and Savior. We are still and listen. We sing praises to him. We meditate on his great deeds. And we tell all who will listen of his greatness. But it all begins. It all begins when we step back from our frantic lives and take time to, as Isaiah counseled us, behold his majesty. J.I. Packer in his little book, Knowing God, has just a couple pages on the majesty of God. And he concludes with these words. How little we make of the majesty of our Lord and Savior. The need for us is to wait upon the Lord in meditations of his majesty till we find our strength renewed through the writing of these things upon our hearts. Behold your God. Behold his majesty.